We are doing the right thing, aren't we? We can't justify curiosity. But her homework. A bit of an excuse, really, isn't it? I've seen far worse. The truth is, we're both curious about Susan, and we won't be happy until we know some of the answers. Well, you can't just pass it off like that. I thought I was just being a busybody. I'd go straight home. I thought you agreed she was a bit of a mystery. Yes, but I think you'll find there's a very simple explanation to all this. Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're working our way through Doctor Who from the beginning to figure out what's worth watching for a modern audience from this 50-year-old show. I'm the corrupted Doctor Who obsessive who's been watching the show for decades, so I have no perspective. And Guy here is representing normal human beings who've never watched Doctor Who, or at least not classic Doctor Who. Hello, Guy. Hello. Good to be here. How's it going? <laughs> I can't complain. <laughs> okay, good. I guide us through the series, and Guy makes the final determination of what's worth watching for normal people. Last time, we discussed the show's unaired pilot, starring a rather nasty version of the original Doctor. So, Guy, for those who missed that one, uh, do you recall your recommendation? I believe back then my recommendation was, if you're curious about it, you should watch it. But since we've watched the aired debut also, I'd say only if you're curious about it. Because it turns out the first half of the show is almost identical. The main appeal of watching the unaired debut is you get a chance to see the moderately more erratic and angry, well, a lot more angry, <laughs> personality that they decided not to go with. If you think you might be a Doctor Who fan or a fan of this particular Doctor, I understand there will be other actors over time, but... If you want to see that angle they decided not to go with, you know, it's only 10 or 15 minutes probably. It'll be worth it if you're interested. Right. Otherwise, the debut is enough. Yep. So people can just start here if they want to and check out the previous if they're curious. Okay, so we will start out talking about the arid version of An Unearthly Child. Susan? Oh, I'm sorry, Miss Wright. I didn't hear you coming in. Aren't they fabulous? Who? It's John Smith and the Commonman. They've gone from 19 to 2. <laughs> John Smith is the stage name of the Honorable Aubrey Waits. He started his career as Chris Waits and the Callows, didn't he, Susan? You are surprising, Mr. Chesterton. I wouldn't expect you to know things like that. I have an inquiring mind and a very sensitive ear. Oh, I'm sorry. This is the second take at this story, rewritten to make it more palatable, to make the Doctor a little more uh, pleasant. We walked through the story itself last time, which hasn't changed much. I'll give a brief synopsis, and then we'll mostly talk about the difference between the unaired pilot and this one. Briefly, what happened is two teachers are mystified by their amazingly smart and talented student, Susan, and they want to figure out where she lives and verify that the old man she lives with is her grandfather. So they follow her to her home in the junkyard. And they end up barging into a police box, which turns out to be the TARDIS, the ship that travels in space and time. After arguing with the doctor, who wants to kidnap them to keep them from revealing what they've learned, they end up in a fight that launches the ship to an unknown destination. That's the first episode, which many people consider to be one of the best premiere episodes of, of any TV series, just for how much it got right and how much of the show to this day still follows what they did in that very first episode 50 years ago. What were some of the differences that jumped out at you in this one? 
Well, one thing I noticed there was, I think it was probably just an editing or sound balancing problem where the TARDIS's noise for about a minute or so in the unaired show was really annoyingly loud. And I didn't notice that in this version of it. Of course, the doctor's personality is a big change because he's less angry, but more smug, kind of cocky and weaselly. And I don't know, just... <laughs> he comes off better than he did in the one they didn't go with, but he still is less than admirable in this one, I'd say. That was definitely an interesting change and an improvement overall. It made him a little more appealing, I think, but still there's work to be done. <laughs> that does get a little better over time, fortunately. In the original, I think in order to make Susan seem really alien, they have this point where she's alone in a classroom. And she puts some ink on a piece of paper and folds up the piece of paper to create a Rorschach image. And they spent a lot of time on it. It didn't really fit into anything. It did make her seem weird. They chose instead this time to have her sitting there reading a book about the French Revolution. <laughs> so yeah. a little more prosaic. Also kind of funny because one of the stories we'll be watching soon is called The Reign of Terror, where they go and, in fact, get involved in the French Revolution, which we find out is the doctor's favorite period in human history, which I, I thought was a bit odd. Or at least it would, it's one thing to want to read about it. I don't think I'd want to go and visit. Yeah, yeah, that could be risky, especially since the doctor seems to have a knack for getting himself into bad situations. Yep, yep. Bad idea, probably. But I did enjoy the way they used that scene. She reads the book and... I don't remember exactly what she says, but it's something like, that's not right. Or you know, something right, that right. indicates she has better knowledge of it than whichever historian was writing about it. Presumably they didn't know that story was coming up. So now you have the weird thing of, she's sort of implying she might've already been there. Mm, yeah. And yet they go back again. So just uh, funny little way the story develops. She also is a little more pleasant in dealing with her teachers. So we talked last time about the fact that she would get quite upset and disrupt the entire class because the teacher asked a question in a way that she didn't think was quite correct or easy to answer. They mostly took that out or at least made it. They didn't take it out, but they made it more palatable this time. She wasn't quite so mm. bratty about it. Yeah. Interestingly, this episode aired the day after JFK was assassinated. TV shows I, I hope we'll cover in the future were being filmed at the same time, like The Man from Uncle. And the same thing happened to a whole lot of actors in these shows, which is sort of the equivalent of 9 11 occurred. Mm. And they then all had to go back to work. Some of them got a day off. But because the first episode aired right after it, it got lower ratings than the BBC wanted. And they decided to rerun the episode the next week. So they were really being quite nice, even though the BBC as a whole was not real supportive of this show. By allowing them to redo the pilot and then running them a second time after the assassination, they really gave them a couple of extra chances to get the show off the ground. So that's good for history here. Yeah. Worked out well for them too. So this episode goes directly into the caveman story, which is the very first story. The idea for the show was that they would do one historical show and one science fiction show and rotate. So they were going to start out basically the beginning of human history. Early on in Doctor Who, they didn't have story names. They just had titles for individual episodes. So there's a debate about what to call this, especially since a lot of people, including me, prefer to separate an unearthly child from the caveman story because they're really two completely different things. 
So I've tended toward calling it one of the standard names, the cavemen or tribe of gum or 100,000 BC. But for our purposes, we're calling all four episodes an unearthly child because that's how it's identified in BritBox. And let's get to the first episode of this story, Cave of Skulls. So in Cave of Skulls, we start off looking at a bunch of cavemen and women in a cave. Guy, what did you think of their appearance? They were for a low-budget show. It was fine. They definitely didn't have all the facial makeup you would expect for the heavy brow and so forth. They're very, very British-looking cavemen. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I noticed very well-groomed. The cavemen definitely had somebody with some nice skills in that department for beards and that sort of thing. (laughs) They are all wearing some furs. In my research... (laughs) I found out that there's sand that they use in these stories. And when they brought in the sand into the studio, it had fleas in it and the fleas got into the furs. So the actors were all dealing with fleas the entire time. (laughs) I think that probably just makes for a more realistic method experience. Oh, sure. (laughs) Very similar to We close in on one particular guy. His name is Zaw. He is trying fruitlessly to make fire while the whole tribe watches. Apparently... The previous leader of the tribe was his father who knew how to make fire, but he died. Uh, And apparently he died because of his knowledge. We don't quite know what happened, but somehow the fact that he knew how to make fire got him killed. He had an interesting technique uh, for trying to make fire. He had a a bone that he was just rubbing back and forth in his hands. I wasn't wasn't quite sure how that was going to work. Yeah, yeah. He was just rolling it back and forth like it was Play-Doh or something. And humorously, in a later episode, they make a lot of fun. The the, the tribe makes a lot of fun of him for that. Even they realized it was a pretty silly idea. Yeah. So there's uh, one old woman. I call her the crone. She's obviously sort of the, the elder woman of the tribe who, who lets people know what she thinks. She's not happy about this whole new invention, this fire thing. She feels like they're better off not going in that direction. Yeah. While he's trying to make the fire, we hear that his rival cow has been out hunting and actually bringing home meat. So the cave people are not so happy that their leader is sitting here rubbing a bone while some other guy is actually going out and, and you know, bringing home the bacon, as it were. Although I guess they were eating it raw since they didn't have any fire. Yeah. And we hear that if Cal becomes the leader, Zaw's girlfriend, whose name is her, H-U-R, she's kind of on the nose, <laughs> goes to him instead. So he's not too happy about that. I think one of the interesting things we'll develop here is that this is really a political story. It's really about politics, which is not what I would necessarily expect for cavemen. Yeah, but they're both pro-fire parties. <laughs> that's true. That's true. After a few minutes of watching these cave people, we're suddenly back to the TARDIS and our crew has been knocked out from the TARDIS trip after the first Unearthly Child episode. They're unconscious. As they slowly wake up and look around, I love this. The doctor is looking at the urometer, which I think is a great name for for a device, and it shows zero. So he's very confused and doesn't know what time they're in. Yeah. We have the first fight of many between Ian and the doctor in this story. Ian. Okay, he walked into this police box and it was really big and something happened, but he's still not willing to believe that this is a traveling space and time ship and expresses a lot of skepticism. We got to, I know, one of your favorite parts here where Ian refers to him as Dr. Foreman. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just open the doors, Dr. Foreman. Hey, Dr. Who? That's the first time you actually hear the words Dr. Who said. Yeah. 
And it's actually the doctor saying, Dr. Who? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Dr. Who? What are you talking about? <laughs> He's already forgotten that was his cover name, apparently. <laughs> so interestingly, Barbara is more amenable. She kind of accepts what's happening and assumes it must be true. Once she saw how the police box was bigger on the inside, she realized that all the rules were different. Yeah. So they leave the TARDIS and they're kind of in a strange, sandy and rocky environment. There's some weird bird sounds. Yeah. It was kind of interesting how they set that up because Ian's saying, let me out. And doctor says, nope, let me out. <laughs> nope. He says, let me out. Okay. <laughs> Just go around and around and finally... There you are. <laughs> right. I remember he said something like, well, if you see a strange landscape and strange birds, will you agree with me then? And that's <laughs> part of their whole debate on this, right? And of course, that's exactly what they walk out into. <laughs> and here we see filmed in a kind of odd way because the TARDIS is behind all of them and the doctor is, is in the foreground looking sort of toward us away from the TARDIS. And he's very concerned. He's saying, what, what's going on? It's still a police box. Why hasn't it changed? Dear, dear. How very disturbing. Because the TARDIS is supposed to change shape. The, the whole reason that it was a police box was because a police box was a common sight. Wherever they go, it's supposed to turn into some common thing, maybe a tree, etc. And it didn't. And he realizes there's something broken. And the funny thing about that is that was really a budget constraint, right? The original concept, I think, was that they would have a different spaceship for every location they went to. But of course, they quickly realized there's no way they could afford to build a new spaceship exterior every time. So they just stuck with the police box. So a, a budget constraint makes Doctor Who history. <laughs> I have to say, I don't know how well the show would have done if they'd actually been turning the TARDIS into all these funky things everywhere. I mean, I suppose they kind of, maybe they could have made it work. Yeah, I mean, they, they could have just had it turn into a giant rock and that would cover 90% of the situations, but <laughs> yep. it wouldn't be quite as, quite as iconic as a police box, you know. <laughs> right, right. And it's funny now, of course, that the police box concept exists because of Doctor Who. <laughs> and so the, the doctor is all excited about seeing what this is all about and runs off and leaves the others alone. And they find a strange skull. At this point, indeed, Ian finally starts believing. Incredible. Police box in the midst of... Oh, it just doesn't make sense. You're very quiet. I was wrong, wasn't I? And he kind of has a little crisis of conscience as he realizes that they really must be traveling in time as well as space. While he's making some speeches about this, a caveman shows up and kidnaps the doctor <laughs> and they hear this. Susan freaks out. So it's one of her, as will be many screaming scenarios. Yeah. And she, uh, she has a set of lungs too. I mean, that, that was just piercing through my speakers. I can't see him. I can't find him anywhere. There's not a Calm sign of him. Calm down, Susan. I don't think terrible's happened to him. I don't have him. She really put her back into it. <laughs> As of this episode, the whole process of her becoming just a, a screaming teenager and which eventually causes the actress to leave the show is there and really lost the potential she had from the first show where she's supposed to be also probably like a hundred years old and obviously much more knowledgeable mm. and mature than the teachers, but that's out the window already. Yeah. So in kind of a weird little point here that ends this scene, Ian suddenly notices that the sand is very cold 
And then we just move on to another scene. Yeah. But that'll kind of come back a little bit. I don't think I ever did put that together or figure out what the significance of that was. Maybe you'll enlighten us about it. (laughs) (laughs) I do have a bit of an idea here. It's right in the beginning of this next scene. So we get back to the caves and it's really, this is a whole long explanation of the politics of what's going on. Zaw is talking to someone and they're talking about the fact that they've got to get fire before the cold comes. So this has to be the original winter is coming (laughs) story long before Game of Thrones. And this is not my brilliant idea, but I realized in in some reading, it's probably not just that winter is coming, but that in fact, that they're entering an ice age. Ah, And that's why if it weren't for Ian touching the sand and talking about that, then it, it would seem like it's just normal seasonal. But of course, these people have been around for a long time and they're really concerned they're going to die without fire. And clearly fire came around pretty recently. So it makes sense that the environment must be changing. There were many, many ice ages. In fact, historically, we're in an unusual period. Usually the earth is much colder than this. That makes sense. And so it turns out that the other guy who's sort of competing for leadership, Cal, he was part of a tribe that all died of cold. So clearly this is serious. And Zah was kind enough or foolish enough to accept him into their tribe. And in appreciation, Kyle immediately turns around and starts trashing Zah <laughs> and trying to become the leader and saying that if the orb, and they, they talk a lot about the orb as sort of a god. Mm. I assume that they're talking about the sun. That was my assumption too, yeah. Cal is saying that if he's the leader, the orb is going to reveal the power of fire to him, but only if he's the leader. So one of our early politicians who's promising that they have a plan if you just elect them. (laughs) So Zah realizes he needs to spill some blood to retain control. So also maybe not too unusual for certain politicians. So things are already heating up on the political front. While he's thinking about this, Cal brings in the unconscious doctor. So it turns out that he was the one who saw the doctor and knocked him out. We didn't really see this, I think, but he had been watching Well, the doctor lit a pipe with a match. So he saw fire come from the hands of the doctor, realizes he knows how to create fire. And so he tells everyone he solved the fire problem. He's going to make this creature here, make it for them. The doctor is unconscious. So while he's laying there unconscious, Cal and Zah both start promising things (laughs) to be the leader. This is the first ever election that's been run. They're both saying by tomorrow, they're going to deliver certain things to the tribe and that will prove that they're the one who should be the leader. And the doctor wakes up and promises to make them fire. Then he checks his person and realizes he's lost his matches. Cal immediately takes a hit in the polls because the tribe is not happy to see that his solution is not going to work. This guy really isn't going to be able to make fire. And he actually immediately decides he's going to kill the doctor if he won't make fire. And at this point, the crew sort of shows up out of nowhere. They've been looking for him, Ian and Barbara and Susan, and start fighting with everyone. Amusingly, Susan jumps on someone's back. Oh, yeah. And she does more screeching. It's kind of piercing in this scene, too. Yeah. They're quickly subdued, but they got distracted from killing the doctor. And then the doctor saves Ian by saying he won't give them the secret of fire if they kill him. Kind of going back and forth between these guys fighting with each other and saving each other (laughs) in this story. So they decide not to kill the crew until the doctor gives them fire and then they'll kill everybody. (laughs) Nice plan if you can make it work, I guess. And they take the crew to the Cave of Skulls. After they do this, the old crone once again warns against fire and wants the crew killed so they can't provide fire to everyone. 
sort of as our last shot, the crew has been, I guess, tied up and they're in this cave of skulls and they notice that all the skulls have had a hole bashed in them. So presumably that is going to be their fate. Yeah. Our good, good children's programming. <laughs> That's the end of our episode. Any thoughts about our first caveman episode? I found it fairly entertaining personally. I think for the people who just want to see the high points of Doctor Who, I think this one might be skippable unless you're looking for the historical notes of the origin of the term Doctor Who. And then there's the revelation that the TARDIS is supposed to be able to change appearance. You know, there's a couple places where facts are introduced for the first time but beyond that i'd say you were probably right in your original estimation that this is a skippable one <laughs> well let's see how it goes with the rest of the episodes so second episode is the forest of fear we start out watching the cavemen sleeping in their cave and while they're doing so the old crone gets up and sneaks over to one of the leaders and gets a rock. It looks just like a rock, but later it's referred to as a knife, which is valid, right? You mm -hmm. would just sharpen the edge of a rock to be a knife. And here's a point. I love this in So He's Old Chosen. And what we're watching right now is really just the very last period where this would happen, where at the beginning of a TV show, the actors would freeze while the credits were rolling. Right. The title of the show and the, and the writer and everything. So <laughs> she picks up this rock. And sort of moves it in front of the camera and then just holds her hand there for about 30 <laughs> seconds while we see the title of the episode and such. I, just, I found that amusing. Yeah. Um, it must have been tough for actors. I did. At the time I was watching it, I thought it was moderately effective at building up a little suspense because, you know, it's like Chekhov's gun. If somebody picks up the weapon mm -hmm. sooner or later, you expect something to be done with it. Right. And there's a bit of a surprise here, as we'll see, because she's already said she wants the crew killed. So we assume that she's going to use this to kill them. Yeah. So we're back to the crew uh, in the Cave of Skulls. It, it also classic stories, right? You tie your bad guys up and then put them somewhere where you're not watching them <laughs> <laughs> so that they have plenty of opportunity to try and escape. Yeah. I was confused about what they could have been tied up with. The cavemen clearly weren't sophisticated enough to have rope really but later on they they mentioned that it's skin so presumably it's dried skin from an animal that they tied them up with yeah. not a big deal it was just something that was curious to me uh, at least they did have an explanation <laughs> kind of interesting because they're not getting along they are bickering with each other while they're trying to find something sharp that they can cut the skins with ian and the doctor are going at each other some more nobody's happy then the doctor has an idea that they could use the bone shards from the skulls. And I think the point here is, and we'll see this in a couple of points, even though he's not the most pleasant guy and Ian is unhappy with him, throughout the story, he is the one who tends to, to have a, the ideas that help them out. Mm -hmm. And in fact, right now, he has a conversation with Barbara. I found this really interesting because it seems like, well, he starts giving her advice for how to remember how to get back to the TARDIS. It seemed to me like he was not expecting to survive. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that he was feeling regretful for having gotten them into this situation. I think somewhere in there, he says something about that. So it kind of feels like he's like, okay, he, he kind of got people into this and he may not make it out and he's going to do what he can to get the rest of them back. What's your thoughts on that? You know, that part of it didn't make a huge impression on me, really. I think I didn't think about it as deeply as you did there. <laughs> Or it just didn't, it didn't strike me that way, which isn't saying you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Rewatch it a few times. We'll see what you think <laughs> <laughs> over the next couple decades. 
So the old crone shows up. I guess there's a rock that's been placed in front of the cave to block it. But she happens to know that there's a convenient hole in the side of the cave that no one else knew about. (laughs) And we think she's going to kill them. But instead, she offers to cut them free if they will leave. So she's not actually a murderer. In the meantime, Zaw and her have figured out that she's disappeared and taken his knife. They finally show up in the cave and the crew is gone. They've been released and they get a little upset with the old crone and they knock her out or I thought they killed her actually, but later it turns out that they knocked her Mm. out and the crew is in the forest. Now, one of the things we'll see in some of these early Doctor Who episodes is there's a lot of getting lost in forests and running around and different techniques for doing that Mm because they're in these tiny little sets and they have to have them realistically running through a forest. So they have all sorts of techniques for that. I thought they did pretty well here. But there is, at least at some point, might be a little later, there's a kind of embarrassing one where they're clearly running in place and some interns or something are smacking them with with branches. (laughs) I know episode four has a good long stretch of that. It's probably a minute, minute and a half. One of the things that is a meme in later Doctor Who is that, especially in the long stories that have like, say, six, seven episodes, they would need to pad the episodes. Mm -hmm. And so... They had what they called running in corridors, you know, usually these spaceships mm. and stuff at that point. And, you know, they just run back and forth in corridors, getting <laughs> kidnapped or getting themselves free to take up a few minutes of time. I remember Scooby-Doo used to do that pretty frequently. They'd give you a couple minutes. I think they'd actually play a little bouncy 60s style musical interlude over it. But you'd see a shot of a hallway with doors on either side and they'd go running out of one door and into another door and, you know, all kinds of comical. Right, right. Antics. There's actually an upcoming story where they literally do that. And there's some controversy about that, but I will leave our audience in suspense so that they keep listening (laughs) to the show. So they're very tired from all this running. So they take a break and now Ian and the doctor have yet another fight, this time explicitly over who is the leader of the group. I'm so cold. I'm hot with all this exertion. We'll rest for a couple of minutes. Oh God. Is there any chance of them following? I expect so. Yes. That's why I don't want to stop here too long. Do you think I want to? No. We'll change the order. You and Susan go in front. Barbara and I'll bring up the rear. Susan seems to remember the way better than any of us. Well, you seem to have elected yourself leader of this little party. There isn't time to vote on it. Just as long as you understand that I won't follow your orders blindly. If there were only two of us, you could find your own way back to the ship. Aren't you a tiresome young man? And you're a stubborn old man. Having watched this a long time ago... And not been the biggest fan of it. I did not pick up until this time what's happening here, which I actually think is kind of interesting. Ian and the doctor are going through the same story that the cavemen leaders are going through. Uh, They are fighting for leadership of the group. uh, This, I think, is a point where if you're looking for that, it becomes clear because they pretty directly say, you're not the leader, I'm the leader, that sort of thing. Also, I guess a point they're making is nothing about humans changes in millions of years. You know, you have the caveman acting this way. You have this far future guy. Yeah. Is Doctor Who actually human or is he like an alien race or is that something that's never... Well, good question. As a spoiler, I forget when they introduced this. He eventually is revealed to have two hearts. Oh, okay. So 
he's obviously human-ish, <laughs> but either a completely uh, separate thing or maybe a more evolved version yeah. than we are. Certainly has many human personality traits in any event. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I suppose having a second heart is a nice backup <laughs> if you can get it. Oh, sure. And this time, for a change of pace, they run across a freshly killed animal, and this time Barbara freaks out and does the screaming, which is unusual for her. She usually sort of has it together. Uh, maybe they just figured they couldn't have Susan do it yet again. <laughs> <laughs> you little variety. What do you two think of this animal they run across? Yeah, I think it was a warthog, if I remember right. Whatever it was, I, th- I remember thinking it was a warthog. <laughs> it was kind of weird. It had some horns hanging off of it. Yeah, it served its purpose. <laughs> and the doctor says it's been killed recently and it must have been killed by a much bigger animal so that there's some mm. big animal hanging around here and we've kind of heard some noises in the forest but barbara's scream tells Zaw and her where they are because they've been in the forest looking for them and so they head for them and the large animal attacks Zaw. now budget saving we don't actually see that happen <laughs> We just hear it, yeah. and then Zaw's covered in blood. And here we get another thing of, of this tug of leadership. Explicitly against the doctor's wishes, the crew goes back to help Zaw. He's like, look, we can make it to the TARDIS. Let's just get out of here. But they want to help him. Yeah. They know he's been hurt. But when they get there and find him, and they realize that he's been injured, but he actually managed to kill the animal. And most of the blood on him is the blood from the animal. So the crew wants to make a stretcher and take Zaw to the TARDIS where they can give him medical care. And the doctor gets really pissed off. This is the wrong thing to do. They should just go. And he says specifically to Barbara, he says he's sick of her feeling that she's always right. (laughs) You treat everybody and everything as something less important than yourself. You're trying to say that everything you do is reasonable and everything I do is inhuman. Well, I'm afraid your judgments are faultless, right? Not mine. Which is kind of amusing because what character thinks they're always right in this story? (laughs) Definitely things are coming to a head about how things are going to work with the crew. In the meantime, we go back to the Cave of Skulls and Cal finds the old crone and realizes that she's released the crew and he kills her. Zah and her had knocked her out, but Cal actually kills her. And now we're back to the crew again. So we're kind of going back and forth here. And now we get some really bad doctor behavior because literally (laughs) while the crew is helping Zaw and, and getting set up to carry him off, the doctor finds a big rock and picks it up and is headed over to Zaw and has clearly decided he's going to get his way by killing him, which is, especially as the series develops, is bizarre. Mm. You know, the doctor is really, over time, as a pacifist. He, he won't shoot a gun and certainly would never intentionally kill someone. Although, as we'll see, there are many cases where he's willing to create a situation in which Someone is going to die. <laughs> he just doesn't want to be the one who does it directly. <laughs> so this is a pretty big deal. Again, we're back to that children's show thing, right? Our hero is, is going to kill somebody. Yeah. So Ian stops him really pathetically. The doctor claims that he wasn't going to kill him. What are you doing? Well, uh, I, I was going to get him to draw our way back to the TARDIS. Doesn't sound believable for a moment. <laughs> Back to the Cave of Skulls, and the tribe as a whole comes in and finds that the old crone is dead. And Kyle says that Zaw killed her. So Kyle actually killed her, but says that Zaw killed her and sets him up. Meanwhile, the crew finally reaches the TARDIS, thinks they've gotten there, and it turns out that cavemen from the tribe beat them there and aren't going to let them in. And that's the end of this episode. So does this one pick up for you a bit? For this episode... 
I'd have to say overall, this one didn't overwhelm me. I'd say uh, this would be another one that I'd probably agree with your original verdict that this could be left out. So out of the three so far, I'd say the episode one would be pretty good idea to watch. The next two, probably skippable. <laughs> okay, let's see if the final episode changes anything. So that's the Firemaker. We open and the crew has been brought back to the cave yet again. And now, uh, humorously, we get kind of a Perry Mason <laughs> sequence. Mm. The cave people are fighting about what happened because Kyle says Zah killed the old woman and her is saying he didn't. Cal dramatically presents the knife that the old woman had taken and says this was the murder weapon. And so everyone is convinced. But then the doctor, who is suddenly Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> <laughs> points out that there's no blood on this knife. Yeah. And Cal says something about this knife is different and doesn't show what it's done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the doctor actually gets a little clever here. He kind of goads him. You know, he says, this knife is really, really fine. Surely it's the best knife of its kind. Mm -hmm. And then Cal says to say, oh, that's not a knife. This is a knife. <laughs> <laughs> right. So he pulls out his own knife, not thinking that because he used it to kill the old crone, it is bloody. <laughs> <laughs> the doctor points this out and all of a sudden the tribe turns against Cal. I guess the trial is over. <laughs> yeah. And then, and this is another weird thing for where Doctor Who goes. The doctor and Ian lead a violent revolt against them. They pick up rocks and start throwing them at him. So, well, Ian would not let the doctor use a rock on Zah earlier. All of a sudden, he's happy to be throwing big rocks at this guy and encouraging the rest of the tribe to do so. So they are, they are now setting up a person to be potentially killed at their instigation. Yeah, they're the ones who start the chant who would drive him out. They're not even part of the tribe, <laughs> but... As soon as they start doing it, everybody gets behind them and joins in the merriment. So it was pretty interesting scene there. I guess, fortunately, depending on what you think, he gets exiled. I mean, he runs out and instead of chasing them, Zah just declares him to no longer be part of the tribe. And if they see him again, he'll be in trouble. Yeah. I'm sure he won't show up again in the story. <laughs> they take the crew back to the Cave of Skulls. Kind of interesting little scene here where Zah and her discuss the qualities of the crew how they don't always kill. And Ian had said something to them about how the tribe, uh, and actually this, they used the fight where they were driving out Cal as an example of how the tribe can accomplish more than an individual. Mm -hmm. So I guess Ian is introducing socialism into the world. <laughs> they now respect the crew, but Zah decides he's still going to kill them if they don't make fire for us. <laughs> I guess we have our priorities. We go back to the Cave of Skulls, and the crew is, in fact, working on making fire. They have Ian using one of those little things where you kind of have a string, and you're pulling it back and forth to rotate a stick and get it to catch things on fire. And I, I will tell you, you know, I watched a lot of Survivor back in the day, and there's no way he was ever going to get fire with what he was doing. <laughs> so Zah shows up and identifies Ian as their leader, and now I guess we have a resolution to this whole thing that I think the story's been about. Ian says, no, I'm not the leader. The doctor's the leader. So after having all these fights with the doctor, he suddenly decided that the doctor's the leader. And I'm not sure we know why that is. Since they last fought about it, there's nothing particular that's happened. In fact, the doctor has only done more bad things. <laughs> so I think it's a little maybe convenient to the story. Well, maybe. <laughs> the fact that we're, we're getting close to the end. Or maybe he just realized he's the guy who knows how to operate the ship. <laughs> it pretty much makes him the leader. 
<laughs> Without them, they're <laughs> stranded in prehistoric times. That's true. I thought it was interesting. Zoc says that they're from the other side of the mountains, which is kind of true, you know. <laughs> not, a, not a bad description. They're not sure where they are or where they're from, but it must be the other side of the mountains. Yeah, metaphorically speaking, yep. <laughs> Somehow, inexplicably, Ian actually manages to get the fire going. And while they're taking a look at that, big surprise, Cal is snuck back <laughs> and he kills the guard outside the cave and then gets in a fight with Zaw. And this is, again, one of these classic old TV show things where the two people start to go for each other. And then all of a sudden we switch into a clearly pre-recorded fight. <laughs> of two people like circling each other that was a classic star trek trope right mm -hmm. and they would often do it in part and they did it here because the director warren hussein was inexperienced with film and also when you're dealing with fights you often don't want especially an inexperienced director doing that so you'll have a fight director who does that part you film it separately ah. and then just cut it in and they do that a lot in the show oh, very good this fight scene has there's one moment where one of the guys, uh, he takes a good hit from the other one, and he does this strangled scream. It almost reminds me of the Wilhelm scream. It's just, just kind of like <laughs> as, as comical as it is impassioned. <laughs> but it's, mm -hmm. it's a fun fight scene, though. You know, kind of stretched out, but it's fun. I like it. And I don't recall if it was the case here, but these, these scenes also, if you're watching carefully, almost always have the case where they're switching back and forth between stuntmen and the actors every time they flip each other or whatever. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't spot it, but I, I'll take your word for it. I'm not sure about this one, so okay. I'll have to go back and check. But I, I do know, uh, this fight goes on forever. It's <laughs> you know, clearly one of those we need to, we're getting toward the end. We don't have quite enough material. <laughs> let's, uh, let's have them keep fighting. Yeah. Although they still throw more padding in later on in the episode, but we'll get to that, I imagine. <laughs> okay. And here's another, like, wow, this is a kid's show. Zaw succeeds by picking up a huge rock and bashing Cal's head in with it. He doesn't do that on screen. Yeah. But there's no question what happened. In fact, we see the girl's reaction to it. Mm -hmm. It's very strongly suggested. <laughs> Verity Lambert, the producer... And Warren Hussein, the director, had an argument while they were editing this. I don't know which, but one of them wanted to have like a squish sound oh, when, when he hit him with the rock. <laughs> so it wouldn't have been any question then. And I think whoever won that was probably correct. I, I really mm -hmm. don't think hearing his head get dashed in would be the right thing for the show. Yeah, it wasn't strictly necessary. Yeah. <laughs> so now Ian has lit a big stick on fire. So he essentially gives off a flaming torch that he can use to keep the fire going. Again, kind of back to politics, Zah immediately wants to take the torch alone to the tribe to show them that he's gotten fire and so that he's a clear leader of the tribe. And Ian objects. He feels like it's not fair for some reason. I don't know why he cares what the <laughs> cave people think. Mm -hmm. And wants, uh, wants them all to go with Zah and all of them to take credit. Mm -hmm. And Zah is pretty clear that that's not going to happen. And then the doctor, and this is an interesting case where the doctor has not been very sympathetic to the caveman and willing to use a rock himself to kill one of them if necessary. Suddenly he empathizes and explains to Ian that, look, we, we need to let Zah establish his leadership and we need to stay out of this. So we'll just let him take back the fire and, and take credit. So for all the bad things the doctor does in these first few stories, we do see these occasional glimpses of how he could develop. Here comes a funny point for me. So Zah comes back with the fire and the tribe's all excited. And one of the cave people says, 
I remember how the meat and fire joined together. <laughs> and I thought, it's the first Food Network show. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, Zaw talks to the crew and explains that he wants them to join the tribe. And in fact, he not just wants them to, but he insists that they do. <laughs> yeah. uh, they're not going to be able to leave. You know, we have a kind of weird scene here. He leaves and the crew is talking about what to do. And Susan, sort of out of nowhere, met more in alignment with her original character in, in the first episode, especially in the unaired episode. She takes one of the skulls and puts it on top of a torch. And the fire is coming through the eye holes and through the mouth. And it's a very creepy image. Mm -hmm. This leads Ian, for some reason, to suggest that they set up four of these burning skulls on sticks so that people will think that they died somehow and they can escape. So they do this and they actually do escape and the tribe does get distracted by the burning skulls <laughs> for a little bit. It, it works very well on them at first. I mean, they're all just freaking out about it. They're wailing and kneeling and, you know, these four flaming skulls and sticks really have some powerful juju, at least at first. Then one of them falls over and they realize, oh, they're just skulls on sticks <laughs> but up to that point <laughs> yeah. they're really impressed and it buys everybody time to yep. get a head start on the escape so i could buy it if they weren't used to seeing that they might take a pause to wonder and there's four of them so they could think oh these strangers have transmogrified and uh whatever i can buy it it worked for me right right <laughs> Then we get to the thing we can't buy. This is the point of my notes where the crew is running while standing still and someone's hitting them with branches. And we have a literal angry mob with torches. So another first, I guess, in, in history, this is the, the mm -hmm. first angry mob with torches. Yeah. This is another filler part. And it's really, <laughs> there, there's basically two types of shots in this sequence, which I didn't time it, but it's at least a minute, I think. And, uh, one shot is the running in place, getting slapped with branches to make it look like the trees are passing by. The other shot is sort of a low camera angle looking up as a whole bunch of pursuing cavemen run by the camera against a black backdrop. So it's very economical <laughs> in terms of production <laughs> expenses. And they do that alternate between those scenes for about at least a minute, I think. Right. So it gets the point across. I felt I really understood what was going on by the end of those scenes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Every once in a while, you know, you got to add a little to reach that 24 minutes. <laughs> but they do reach the TARDIS. The cavemen don't manage to get to them. This was odd to me, right? They desperately run into the TARDIS, shut the doors, and they just got to get out right now. Got to take off. And I'm like, you're in a spaceship. You think the cavemen with torches are going to be able to do anything or get in the door <laughs> maybe it's just stress from everything they've been through well though ian and barbara at least wouldn't have any idea how durable i mean it, it is on the outside at least it's just a police box and presumably those aren't made yep. of titanium yep. so you know <laughs> understandable that they'd be a bit concerned here <laughs> so they take off and the caveman watches it disappears and they land somewhere, somewhere, and, and this is something they, they used to do in the old days, which is they would bridge to the next story. So they would give you a scene that often they would reproduce either in whole or in part as the beginning of the next episode to start the next story. Right. Here they actually have some material they don't repeat, and then they end with material that they do. They have another fight. After all this and having declared the doctor the leader, 
they have a fight about whether he knows how to fly the TARDIS and, you know, can ever, ever get them back to their, their home. And he's a little pissy about it and blames them in part. And, you know, it's just the, uh, these early stories where they're really going back and forth. When they land, there's the monitor shows a strange force outside. So the last thing they do is take a look at a radiation meter to make sure everything's okay. And it's in the normal range. So they're happy. They go off to change clothes and get cleaned up and then find out where they are. And of course, as soon as they walk away, the radiation meter zooms over into the danger zone. We are now at the end of our episode and the end of our story. So before we get to your final determination, what are your general thoughts of the whole story as a whole? Uh, story as a whole was fun. I actually enjoyed a lot of the cavemen politicking and bickering, but then I think that's probably kind of an idiosyncratic thing. I think a lot of people wouldn't enjoy it as much, probably. The story as a whole, it was fun. You know, not any world beater, but it was it was fun. There's one thing I wanted to mention about that last episode that I don't think we mm-hmm. brought up yet, which is that's one point when they're making the fire, and I think the episode is actually named after this quote. It's uh, the episode's called Firemaker. Ian says something that in our culture, the firemaker's the least important man. All right. And then the doctor explains, well, when everybody can make fire, the firemaker's not that important. Actually, Susan gets a cute little joke off, then you know, she kind of leans over and says to Ian and Barbara, I hope he's not going to ask the doctor to prove that <laughs> that that the rest of us actually know how to make fire <laughs> but that was a fun little, little bit of quotable wisdom from the doctor there <laughs> right a part of the point in this whole sort of them teaching cavemen principles that will then become part of humanity so that you know really this story is about all of humanity as morality being created by what they teach these cavemen oh, yeah the idea is Zod does not have to be the only person who knows how to make fire because the concept they have is the leader knows how to make fire. And so he doesn't want to teach anyone else. Well, he was planning on perpetuating the same thing that had him screwed over from the start, which was that his dad never taught him how to make fire. You know, and he just said, well, yep. that's the way it's done. I guess I won't teach anybody to make fire either. <laughs> I was just <laughs> right. repeating the mistakes of the past. I think we get the implication, but we don't know that, that he does buy into their argument and probably does teach people how to make fire. But who knows? All the way up to the end, even once he, he respected and liked the crew, he was still happy to kill them if they didn't give him what he wanted. Yeah, so, that's, uh, I think, you know. that's an interesting thing uh, about the ending of the episode is it isn't, you know, you might expect a nice little, everybody learns something about themselves and they have a nice little sentimental farewell and so on. Nope, you don't do that. They're chasing them with spears all the way back till they escape. <laughs> so yep. that was kind of fun. So for my part, from the obsessed viewer of Doctor Who over the decades, I was surprised in rewatching it because from that perspective of if you're interested in the history of Doctor Who and how everything developed, I have actually come around to thinking that this fight for leadership and establishing the doctor as as the leader, and we didn't mention it, but this is even where the doctor refers to them as companions at some point and starts using the term companions, which then continues through today. Okay. So from the obsessed Doctor Who watcher thing, I think at least once it is worth watching through this, you know, with those things in mind, knowing that there's some silly caveman stuff. But the ultimate goal of this show is whether a just curious, normal viewer 
should watch this story or move on to something more exciting. So what, what is your final determination? Well, I think from the point of view of someone who still hasn't seen any of Doctor Who beyond some episodes of this first season, I'd say if you really want to leave out some episodes, but get the Doctor Who experience of these first four, I'd recommend the first one, the uh, unearthly child. And then the fourth one, the firemaker, because that is a lot of neat stuff in it. You've got Doctor Who's turn as a detective. You've got the flaming skulls. You've got the quote about the firemaker and the, the, the big, big, huge fight scene. Uh, a lot of fun stuff in it. And it really kind of does a good job of like letting you catch up on what you would have missed in the other two preceding episodes. So I'd say, uh, I'd say the fourth one would be worth watching. I mean, they were all fun, mm. but if you're, if you're looking to get an abridged version, I'd say one and four are the ones to watch. Yeah. And while there is a bunch of, of stuff laid out as uh, what the political situation is and everything in the second episode or the, the first one of this part of the story, I think you're probably right. Probably someone watching the fourth one would be able to pick up pretty quickly uh, some of that and whatever they didn't pick up probably wouldn't be that important. Yeah. So, well, then our final rating is sort of, is kind of worth watching, you know, half worth watching, right? Two out of four episodes. <laughs> okay. Well, the next one we'll be covering in our next episode will be the story that really saved Doctor Who and really put it into the stratosphere in the British public right away, and that is the Daleks. So we will find out what we think about it now, 50 years later, and we'll see everyone then. Very good. And then to all intents and purposes, we're going to die. Look! Huh? It is nothing but fire and the bones of the dead. They have gone. While we look at their fire, they have gone. Into the night, the dark will hide them. It's like, uh, what was the thing that used to piss me off? Oh, on, um, on Apple machines, when there's kind of a notification or something, the icon for that particular app will jump up and down ah. Then you click on it and then you see the notification. It would drive me crazy that, um, uh, like the browser or something would jump up and down and eventually you click on it. And it's like for, for a brief second, you know, a while back, we weren't able to connect the internet. No, we're fine now. You know, I'm like, <laughs> well, thanks a lot for taking up my time with that. <laughs> <laughs>